Why the gift of tongues? 1 Corinthians 14. One of the most famous churches in the 1980s was an evangelical church in California called, does anybody know what this church is up here? The Crystal Cathedral. Unfortunately, it is now owned by a Catholic church and is no longer evangelical. But in the 1980s, the pastor there was named Robert Schuller, and his service was broadcast on TV as, does anybody know what it was called? The Hour of? Some of you know. There you go. It claims to be the most watched religious program of that decade. Robert Schuller's philosophy of ministry was to give people uh, a spiritual experience that made them feel good about themselves. So he wanted them to have a religious service that made them feel better about themselves and that all people could come to a service that they could enjoy. So they built this huge facility called the Crystal Cathedral, and Robert Schuller called it a 22-acre shopping center for God. And his philosophy of church actually has had a profound impact on many churches today, to the point that now many churches and many people gather in a facility to try to feel better about themselves, to get hyped up spiritually. And of course, many times they call that Christianity. You can find that in churches that offer a professional adrenaline pumping performance where you have paid professionals that give you a performance. You can find that in churches that promise that if you come, they will give you a healing or maybe you can fall on the ground in a religious euphoria. But the goal in many of those churches is to, to make you feel better so that you can feel closer to God. What we're going to find in our text this morning is that this is a satanic distortion of the church. But this is not new. Even the first century church, this church here in Corinth that Paul was writing to, was tempted with this philosophy of ministry. See, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, the apostle Paul was rebuking the church for that type of approach to their gatherings. The the Corinthian church longed for this emotional ride of a religious high through their idea of speaking in tongues. And their approach to church was to seek this spiritual experience through tongues. Last week, we learned that the biblical gift of tongues was not gibberish. It was not a heavenly language. It was a supernatural gift to praise God in a real human language, which was unknown to the speaker. So it was a supernatural gift of the Holy Spirit upon a person to be able to speak a language, be able to praise God for the gospel in a language that that person didn't naturally speak. So it would be like someone standing up and praising God for 
the resurrection, and they did it in Portuguese, but we don't speak Portuguese. So you would need someone with the gift to be able to translate that. These would have been remarkable gifts, the gift to speak in a foreign language, the gift to be able to supernaturally translate that into a language that we understand. These would have been spectacular gifts to exercise. So you can imagine why the people of, in the church of, first, uh, of Corinth, the church of Corinth, would have desired this gift to supernaturally speak in other languages. And so Paul was teaching them here in 1 Corinthians 14 that the church is not spiritually built up by you exercising some type of supernatural gift like that. It's not just about coming to a service like this and and getting some type of experience where you just feel closer to God. He's saying in 1 Corinthians 14, you actually are spiritually built up through the mind as the Holy Spirit transforms your mind with God's word. And so the principle we learned last week and we will continue into this week is the principle of profitability. And that is a local church profits in building up one another by maturing the mind, not by religious experience. The word mind is repeated six times in 1 Corinthians 14. The word thinking occurs three times. So central to this passage is that God wants you to use your mind. And here Paul contended that the focus of ministry in the local church should be to the person through the mind. I've been reading Martin Lloyd-Jones, a pastor from the 20th century, and he explains that the highest part of a person made in the image of God, the highest part of that image of God is the mind. And that's why God addresses truth to your mind. How does God change us? How does God sanctify us? How does God comfort, encourage, and correct us? It's through the power of the Holy Spirit to take God's word and renew your mind. The Holy Spirit uses the truth of God's word to inflame the soul to love and obey the Lord. So it's God's word applied to the mind that inflames the soul with the word to love God. Think about a locomotive. For the Christian, your mind is like an engine. And your emotions follow along like boxcars. So you think about like the boxcars of of peace and comfort and contentment. They are pulled along by the engine of your beliefs, of your thoughts, of your mind. So the aim of the word-centered ministry is to supernaturally get the engine of your mind functioning properly so the rest of the train of worship and peace and comfort will follow that. And so think about ministry in the local church and the preaching of the word being like like a like a, a light that ignites the the gas of of your mind, the, the fuel of your mind and inflames you to love God. One of the problems I think that we have in in our culture and in even in 
the Christian church is that we live in a non-thinking, irrational, feelings-based, dopamine-addicted world. And that's why I think we look around and we see that the majority of communication in our world is through entertainment. In schools, we're now teaching our children through entertainment. In churches, many of them are preaching the gospel through entertainment. It's amusing people. And I think that's why you see many Christians can only stand about 20 minutes of preaching a week and five minutes of reading their Bible every day. They're not engaging their minds. They just want to feel something. And so Paul here is saying, listen, you need to grow up in your mind. In fact, look at that in verse 20, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 20. This is the only command here found in verses 14 through 25. So in this passage of scripture, verse 20 has the command that Paul wants everyone to walk away with. Verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 14. Brothers, so he's speaking to the church, do not be children in your thinking, be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. There's the command. Be mature in your thinking. Now, let's take this little rabbit trail that Paul has here. Be infants in evil, because that's an important one for us today. How relevant is that phrase this month (laughs) when literally our world is celebrating evil, that which is outside of God's will? And so this passage of scripture, I think, is telling us, yes, you need to be equipped in your thinking. We need to equip our children to biblically think about this world, but that does not mean we need to defile their minds with evil. We should be infants in regard to evil. We need to protect the mind from evil. And it's very clear that the goal of promoting and normalizing and celebrating this LGBTQ religion is to inundate people with the evil. And the aim is to indoctrinate, to normalize what is outside of God's will. And so we need to be innocent in regard to that. So, so I think from that, we need to recognize that we need to be very careful what we put into our minds from the media. There's a reason why they're making the, the films and the other media that they're making, that there's a reason why they're producing that. They're trying to indoctrinate with their mindset, of their belief system. And so he says, listen, be innocent and evil, but use your brain. <laughs> mature, be matured in your thinking. And so the principle of profitability here is that the church builds up through the maturing of the mind. What does Paul want the Corinthian church to be mature about in their thinking? Well, it's in regard to the gift of tongues. So he's saying here, engage your mind, reason about what the scriptures say. And so we're going to read verse 19 down through verse 22. Notice the word mind. Notice how the Lord wants us to use our brains, our minds. Verse 19, 1 Corinthians 14, 19. Nevertheless, in the church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. That is in another language that I don't know. 
Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. In the law, it is written, by people of strange tongues, strange languages, and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, tongues is not a sign for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is not a sign for unbelievers, but for believers. Let's ask God to apply this text to our church here this morning. Father, I pray that you will take a text that's going to be hard for us to understand, illumine our minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, and then Lord, help us to engage our minds to consider the truth of who you are, and how you want us to follow, enjoy, and love you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we learned there's seven passages in the New Testament that speak about the gift of tongues, only seven. Mark 16 predicts it. Acts 2, 10, and 19 describe an account of the gift of tongues. 1 Corinthians 12 gives a list It includes in the list of gifts for the church, the gift of tongues. 1 Corinthians 13 predicts that tongues, the gift of tongues, will cease. And then 1 Corinthians 14, the church was corrected in their improper use of the gift of tongues. And the question we asked last week was, what was the gift of tongues? So we saw that, that it's actually a real language being spoken supernaturally, but the speaker does not know what he's saying. He's praying and praising, I should say he's praising God for the gospel. We saw that last week. And if you're like confused by that and you're going, what? Okay, go listen to last week's sermon. That should clear it up for you. So the question we're asking this week is why? Why did God give the gift of tongues? And I'm just going to tell you, it's a super cool reason. I think, honestly, what's happening in many churches with this, with this gibberish and all this, with the speaking in tongues by what they call tongues, it's actually distracting from the reason why God gave the gift of tongues and why it's really pretty awesome that he gave this to the church. This was given for a particular time in redemptive history, and when you understand the reason for the gift of tongues, you understand how the church was to use it. When you know the reason for something, you know how to use something. For instance, if after the service here we see a bunch of children on top of the chairs and they're playing lava, you know what that is? You touch the ground and your feet burn off, okay? And so they're jumping on the chairs. You might stop and say, hey, hey, get off those chairs. Those chairs are not for jumping on, they're for sitting. In other words, you're saying... There's a, there's a purpose in these chairs. There's a reason we have them. They're for sitting down. We don't want to ruin the, the reason why we have these chairs. And so you're giving them the reason. In other words, the reason informs the use. And that's what we'll find here. When we understand the reason for the gift of tongues, we'll understand the, the, the use of it. And we're going to understand that it was useful for a certain time in redemptive history, but it's no longer needed today because the purpose is no longer needed in the local church. So look at verse 20. Why did God give the gift of tongues? Well, at the very end of verse 20, he says, in your thinking, B, 
be mature. So he's saying, study the scriptures, go to the, God's word and understand what God says about this. Like go from your thinking that's right here, that's shallow and go deeper. That's what he's saying. So then he does that. Verse 21, he quotes Isaiah 28, the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. Verse 21, in the law, it is written, quote, by people of strange tongues, and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So Isaiah 28 is a passage spoken by God through the prophet Isaiah to unbelieving Israel. He's telling unbelieving Israel that they're going to know that they're under God's judgment for rejecting him when they hear other people speaking tongues that they do not know. Notice the end of verse 21. They will hear strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners. And the word tongues means languages. So the unbelieving Israelites would know that God was judging them when they were exiled and they would listen and they would hear the people who were their captives were speaking languages that they did not know. In fact, notice the end of verse 21 that it says, even they, then they will not listen to me. So it's not like the speaking the other languages turns their hearts to the Lord. They continue in unbelief. This is unbelieving Israel here. And so verse 22, Paul says, therefore, in conclusion, verse 22, thus tongues, these foreign languages are not a sign for believers, but for unbelievers, and particularly for unbelieving Israel. Because remember, remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says, the Jews demand what? A sign. And so here he's saying the sign for unbelieving Jews, unbelieving Israel, is speaking other tongues. So he says in verse 22, thus tongues, these other languages, are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. Why is prophecy a sign for believers? Prophecy was declaring God's word. And when you declare God's word, it edifies, it builds up believers. So it's a sign for them that they are being built up by the very words of God. But tongues is a sign for unbelieving Israel. What's a sign? A sign is a supernatural indication that God is at work in a particular way. It's a supernatural indication that God is at work in a particular way. So in Exodus chapter 4, you have Moses with his staff, and he throws it on the ground, and God enables that to turn into a snake. He picks it up by the tail, which you don't do with snakes. He picks it up, and it turns back to a staff. That was a sign to Moses and then eventually to Israel that God was speaking to and through Moses and he would lead them out of captivity. So that was a sign. So here the sign, the supernatural indication is for unbelieving Israel. And it's a sign of judgment. So what we're going to see is when they were hearing these foreign tongues like the gift, of, the gift of tongues, it was a sign of judgment for those, for national Israel, 
that were unbelieving, that they were being set aside temporarily, and now the gospel was for the Gentiles. So it's a sign of rejection for unbelieving Israel, and it's a sign of inclusion for the nation of, for the nations, that's the Gentiles. And so I put this on the screen up here and also put it in your bulletin so you can have that and see that very clearly. In fact, do this with me. Go to Genesis chapter 11. Because what I want us to do is to mature ourselves in our thinking in regard to the gift of tongues and see from Genesis chapter 11 through Revelation how God has used this as a sign, foreign tongues as a sign of judgment. Genesis chapter 11 recounts the historical event when God divided the tongues of humanity, that there was one language that all people spoke at one time, but then God confused the languages at the Tower of Babel or the Tower of Confusion. Look at Genesis chapter 11, verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language in the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build, notice, ourselves, a city and a tower with its top to the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So in our text here of Genesis 11, humanity chose to unite against God. Their sin was not building a city. That was not the sin. The sin was they were rejecting God, and instead they were putting themselves in the place of God. That's what you see here. It's the idea that they wanted to celebrate self. They wanted to celebrate humanity. They wanted to worship humanity. So they're going to build a monument city to themselves so they can worship at the feet of self. They wanted to do what was right in their own eyes instead of the eyes of the Lord. Does that sound familiar? Today, the world is uniting together in rebellion to God. And it's really a religion of self. And what's interesting is, when did this all start? Right? For the nations, it started in Genesis chapter 11. The world united against God to worship self. What's interesting to see is the end of the nations will conclude in the same way. What's the next event in redemptive history? It's the return of Christ, right? The rapture of the church. And then we go into this time where there's a world leader who unites the world together in opposition to God And what's interesting is the world religion really is the religion of self, religion of this person, but ultimately it's following your own heart, your own way. In fact, notice this verse in Revelation chapter 13, verse 7, describes this time where God allows this antichrist, this leader, 
to make war on the saints, Revelation 13, 7, and to conquer them. And authority was given it over, notice this, every tribe and people and what? Language and nation. In other words, all the languages of the world are united together under this one who's opposed to Christ. And they're united against God. So Genesis 11 is like chapter 1 of the nations rejecting God. Revelation 13 is like the last chapter of the nations rejecting God. And we are turning to the last chapter right now. Right? This is what you see in our country today is a world that's uniting under the worship of self. And you're not going to look up online and probably find the religion of self. But let me just tell you what you see in our universities, what you see on TV, what you see at Disney, what you see with people marching down the street or whatever. It is the religion of self. In fact, honestly, I would say there's probably some people in here and you follow the religion of self and you don't even know it. Or maybe you don't think about it that way, but it is a religion. How do we know it's a religion? Well, let me just kind of convince you of this, okay? And if you're not convinced, that's okay. The goal, the goal of the religion of self is to be happy. Wouldn't you say that pretty much describes our philosophy of life in our country, in our world? The goal is to be happy by following my feelings and enjoying whatever brings me pleasure Enjoying whatever brings me pleasure, enjoying me. For the Christian, what's our goal? Glorify God. It's to glorify God by following him and enjoying him forever. The religion of self seeks to glorify me, my will be done on earth, and there is no heaven. And then there's the sin. What's the sin of this religion of self? It's oppression. Notice that. If you're in a university, if you're a young person in a university or even in school, what you're noticing is what you're hearing all the time, it's oppression. It's oppression. Everyone's united. These groups are all united. In the center of it, it's because you're oppressed. And what's the idea of oppression? It's the idea that if you disagree with me, then you're oppressing me. And yet it's called hate speech. In fact, actually what I'm doing right now, our state government would consider this oppressive. They would consider this hate speech, be just declaring what God's word says. So the sin of our world is the sin of oppression. Disagreeing with me is being oppressive. The Bible says sin is disobedience to God in his law. And remember, God is a God of love, and his law is about love. Love God with all your heart. Love one another as yourself. The sin of the religion of self is saying, you're not loving me like I want you to. The atonement of the, sin, the religion of self is the good works, quote unquote, good works of tearing down cultural norms and biblical authority structures and supporting their beliefs. So that's why you see all this, this celebration. Everyone's got to wear this flag and they got to do this out there because they, they want to have this, these kind of earn merit. So these companies and people do this. They want to have favor with other individuals. And so this is really just an atonement system and salvation is trying to be more of my authentic self. So how do you become more of your authentic self? Well, it's, it's by believing in me. It's really following the faith of my feelings. Atonement is found, true atonement is found only in Jesus Christ. He died on the cross 
once for all for sin. We can't be good enough. We don't have enough good works. He's the only one that did the good work to take away our sin. And salvation is only found in Jesus Christ as we denounce self. We recognize we are sinners and we trust that he alone is the savior and he saves us from our sin. But the religion of self is a religion based upon faith and feelings. See, our our faith, church, is faith in God's word and it's faith based upon historical fact, right? It's faith based upon truth. The religion of feeling, the religion of self is faith based upon how I feel. So if I feel like I am a girl, but I biologically am a boy, then according to this religion, say you're a girl. Be your authentic self. Have faith in your feelings, even if it's not biologically true. Or, or if, if you're going to have a baby, you're pregnant, but you don't think it will make you happy then you can kill it, you can abort it. Live how you feel, be your authentic self, be your true you, even if it takes the life of a baby. Have faith in your feelings. So let's be clear about it. What we see in our world is a religion. And you you might have the religion of self, it might not look this way, but you are your own God. You call your own shots. You live by your own word. You trust your own word, your own feelings. And this is what was happening here It's been happening since the beginning of time, since the fall of man and woman, and that is the world unites against God. And that's what happened in Genesis 11. But let me just give you a clue here. First of all, God always wins, right? And so what we see in our world, God will win in the end, but he wins through Jesus Christ. And so here's the truth Church and friends, if you are in here without Christ, here's the truth. It's that it's not that God wins by saying he hates everyone. He wins by saying, I sent my son because I love you and you can be in his family. And so what God says is that true joy, true contentment is found in Christ alone. Peace and forgiveness is found through Christ. And so if you come to him, he offers life to you. So Genesis 11, though, God, he's in control from the beginning. Look at verse 7. This is Yahweh God, the triune God. So he says in verse 7, come, let us, that's the Trinity right there, friends, the triune God, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So God judged the world with the confusion of languages. And so the various languages was a sign to them that they were under the judgment of God for rejecting God. Now go to Deuteronomy chapter 28. Go to Deuteronomy 28. So we're following the thread of these various foreign tongues in the judgment, the sign that those tongues that those tongues were a sign of judgment. So turn to Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28 is the giving of the law to Israel, particularly here, the curses if they reject God. Remember, the nation of Israel was the nation of which God said salvation would come through them. God promised the father of Israel, Abraham, that in your offspring, and that's singular, that's pointing to one person, that's Jesus Christ, in your offspring shall all the, what, nations 
of the earth be blessed. Not just Israel, yes, through Israel, but all the nations. So God will unite the nations that believe in Jesus Christ through the gospel. And in Deuteronomy 28, God says, yes, I'm, I'm going to work through Israel, but Israel, if you reject me, I will set you aside. And a sign of that will be foreign tongues. Look at Deuteronomy 28, 45. All these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you until you are destroyed because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that he commanded you. Notice verse 46. They shall be a sign and a wonder against you and your offspring. Go down to verse 49. The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar. So here's the sign. A nation's going to come from the end of the earth, swooping down like the eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand. So he's saying in the future, when you reject me, there will be a nation that will come in. They will take you captive. And here's the sign that you're under God's judgment. There's languages being spoken that you don't understand. Go to Isaiah chapter 28. Isaiah 28. As you're turning to Isaiah 28, you can write down Isaiah 5 is another passage that speaks about this. But we don't have time to go through all these passages. So if you want to look that one up, you can. Isaiah. That's Jeremiah 5. We're going to be in Isaiah 28. This is the text of scripture Paul quoted in 1 Corinthians 14. The prophet Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 28, verse 1, speaking to the northern kingdom of Israel. Ah, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim, or Israel. So he's speaking to Israel. He's warning them of judgment because they're rejecting the word of God. In fact, look at verses 9 and 10. Verses 9 and 10 are quotes. You can see the quotation marks there. It's, it's God quoting the people of Israel. So Israel mocked God by ridiculing his word. And so God quotes them. Verse 9. So this is, this is Israel in rebellion. To whom will he, that's God, teach knowledge? To whom will he explain the message? Those who are weaned from the milk, those taken from the breasts. So their complaint was, who does the Lord God think he is? Who do you think we are? What, are we just a bunch of babies? God says, blah, 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 blah. So their accusation against God is that his word is boring. And so look at verse number 10. If you were to read this in the Hebrew, you can. it sounds like a baby's babbling. Verse 10, for it's precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here little, there little. So they're complaining about God's word. And so God responds to them in verse 11. And he basically says, so you're rejecting my word, which means you're rejecting me. Therefore, judgment for you, Israel. Verse 11, for, this is God speaking now, for by people of strange lips, and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to his, to this people. So this is a quotation of 1 Corinthians 14, 21. When the unbelieving Israelites were taken into captivity here, 
and they heard foreign tongues. And when they heard those foreign tongues, for northern Israel, it was the Assyrians. For Judah, it was the Babylonians. When they heard those foreign tongues, they were to go, uh-oh, we're under God's judgment. But what's interesting is actually they don't do that. Many of them continue in their sin. And we see that at the time of Christ. So go to, first, so go to uh, Acts chapter 1. Go to Acts chapter 1. I want to show you this. As you're going to Acts chapter 1, think about the Gospels, and here you have the nation of Israel led by the Sadducees, and Jesus gives them signs, and they reject those signs. And they say, then, give us a sign. And what, is, what does Jesus say to them when they say, give us a sign? He says, you're an adulterous and wicked generation asking for a sign. So in other words, what he's saying to them, he's saying, listen, you are rejecting me. You're rejecting the gospel. Therefore, the nation of Israel will be set aside for a time, for a time period. And so that's what we see today. Now, there's going to be a time when God will have his people, Israel, be his people. And we'll see many of them come to Christ. And that's for another sermon, another time. Go to Acts chapter 1, because I want to see, I want to show you this fulfillment here in Acts 1, Jesus is speaking here to his disciples. He's about to ascend to heaven. He promises them, them the gift of the Holy Spirit will indwell them permanently. The Holy Spirit will be permanently in them, but they have to wait for it. Look at Acts 1.8. But you, Jesus says, will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And notice the ripple effect of the gospel. In Jerusalem, and then Judea, all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And you can actually go through the book of Acts, and you can outline the book of Acts by Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. Or at least what they knew at that time as their known world. So go to Acts chapter 2. In Acts 2, we see the fulfillment of God's promise in the Old Testament, Acts 2, verse 1, 120 disciples are praying. When the day of Pentecost arrived, or you could say it like this, was fulfilled, they were all together, these 120 disciples, in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. So this mighty wind. I grew up in Indiana, and we knew what tornadoes sound like. It sounds like a train's coming at you, all right? So he had this mighty rushing wind, the sound of it, I should say, the sound of it in this room. So what does wind represent? Well, the breath of God, the, the, the Holy Spirit coming. And then, then the scripture says that the, these flames of fire were over their head. Why is that? Well, recall in the Old Testament, God's glory rested over the tabernacle as a pillar of fire. And the fire represented that God's presence was there. So when the Holy Spirit came upon them, God gave a sign that the, that the presence of the Holy Spirit was on them by visibly showing the Shekinah glory over them. And this was something 
for a particular time, a sign for a particular time in redemptive history. This has not occurred again, right? We're not seeing this happening today. Verse 4, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues or other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. The disciples supernaturally, therefore, spoke other languages here. What we we're going to see here, what we saw last week, is they're praising God for the gospel in these other languages. Notice they're not out of control, rolling on the ground, because the end of verse 4 says this, they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So there was this succession of speaking was orderly. Verse 6, and at this sound, what sound? Of speaking, or I should say of hearing foreign languages, at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? And then he lists these languages out. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, uh, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya beyond uh, belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So they're praising God for the gospel in these various languages. And verses 9 through 11, Luke lists 15 different languages the disciples were praying in. And Luke drew for us almost like a verbal map of what they knew of the known world at that time. He went all the way from the east, which is what we would consider Iran today, and Persia for them back then. So he went from Persia about 2,000 miles over to Europe. And then he went north from Europe about 1,000 miles down to Africa. So he covered, with these languages, 2 million square miles. And so what he's doing here, he's, he's saying, these are all these nations now that are gathered here in Jerusalem, at least the representatives of that. Verse 12, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocked. Others mocking said, are, said, they are filled with new wine. How did the Jews respond to the sign of the gift of tongues? Well, some were confused, but other people mocked and said they're drunk. And here's the irony. What's happening here is what God foretold would happen in Isaiah 28. And God says, you're drunk on your own pride. And so here's the irony. These people are saying, no, they're drunk. And they are rejecting the gospel. So, so the gift of tongues was not a way to evangelize. You don't see these people saying, oh, we repent. What you see is they're rejecting the gospel. And God's saying here, listen, I am setting aside national Israel for a time. And these speaking in other languages is a sign that God is judging Israel for rejecting the gospel. And yes, those Jews who believed the gospel were included, but he's also saying he's opening up the gospel now to the Gentiles. Turn over to Acts chapter number 10, Acts 10. As you're turning there, I want you to think about who spoke in tongues in Acts chapter 2. 
What was 120 disciples? Then you had Peter preach. 3,000 people came to the Lord. Did they speak in tongues? The Bible doesn't say they did. So the only ones who spoke in tongues in Acts chapter 2 were the 120 disciples, and they did it for a purpose. It was a sign of judgment for the unbelieving Israel. Then Acts chapter 10, again, we see Jews, but now what we're going to see is God's going to make it very clear to the Jewish people, particularly to the apostles, that the Gentiles are included in the gospel. Acts 10, we find an unclean Gentile, Cornelius, a centurion. Look in verse 28, Acts 10, 28. Peter, remember, he receives a vision from God. Here's his conclusion. And he, that's Peter, said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation, but God has showed me that I should not call any person common or unclean. And so what he's saying is, I'm realizing now, although this was told by Jesus, it's not new information, but he's now realizing, no, no, the Gentiles are included into the gospel here. God made it very clear to Peter so notice verse number 43, Peter concludes this. He actually preaches the gospel. I'm sorry, verse 34, Peter opened his mouth and he said, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. In other words, God's not just saving the Jews. He's going to save the Gentiles. He's going to give them the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. He preaches the gospel in the next couple of verses there. Look at verse 43. This is his conclusion of preaching the gospel to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him that's Jesus Christ receives forgiveness of sins through it is not just for the Jews it's to the Jews first but it's also for the Gentiles and friends in here that means salvation is open to you God wants you to come to him by faith he wants you to be in his family and he does it through Jesus Christ. And the problem we have is what? We are burdened by our own sins. And there's only one way to have that burden be released. It's through the forgiveness that Christ offers to those who believe. All the prophets, the entire Old Testament, bear witness that whoever believes, whoever is good enough, is that what it says? Whoever tries hard enough, is that what it says? No, whoever believes in Jesus receives forgiveness of sins through his name. In verse 44, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard it. You heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised, so that's the Jews, who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speak in tongues and extolling God. So the Gentiles were saved, and God gave them the gift of praying in another language as a sign. And why did they speak in those tongues, supernaturally speak in those tongues? It was a sign of judgment for the unbelieving Israel who was rejecting the gospel, but also a sign that now the Gentiles are included. I mean, isn't that not clear from this text of Scripture? This is not about having a, a closer spiritual relationship with God. It's actually a sign to say, this is why this is happening. It's because God is now including the Gentiles. 
Notice Acts chapter 11, verse 15. Because then what happens after this, Peter goes to the apostles and he says, I want to tell you what happened. The Gentiles are included in God's family if they believe the gospel. In Acts eleven fifteen, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit, Peter says, fell on them, that's the Gentiles, just as on us, that's the Jews, at the beginning. He's saying what happened here to the Gentiles was the same thing that happened in Acts chapter 2. And what people like to do with this, a lot of charismatics like to do is say, well, these are different events. No, clearly Peter is saying it's the exact same type of experience they had. Now, lastly, go to Acts chapter 19. Acts 19 is the last time we see a historical account of the gift of speaking in tongues. And I think that's primarily because what you see is the gospel is going to Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and now we're at the, the uttermost parts of the earth, if you could say it that way. And so you're seeing it diminish. Acts chapter 19 is actually the same time in Ephesus that Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. So historically, it's at the same, same moment in time. In Ephesus, there were many Jews. And Paul found 12 men in Ephesus who were Old Testament believers. So they believed the Old Testament. They heard the message of John the Baptist. They believed that, but they hadn't heard about Christ yet. And so Paul gives them the gospel. They come to know Christ. And look at verse number 6, Acts 19.6. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. And they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. So this is the same type of event as Acts 2, Acts chapter 10. And why was praying in tongues necessary here? Well, for the same reasons we saw before. In fact, if you look down in Acts chapter 19, verse 8, you can see that Paul goes into a Jewish synagogue. He preaches for three months. And verse 9, how do the Jews respond to him? They're stubborn. They continued in unbelief. That's what it says there in verse 9. Acts 19.9. The Jews were stubborn and continued in unbelief. That's exactly what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. In verse 21, that's what he was saying. What's happening is that the tongues, the gift of tongues was being done as a sign that the Jews that disbelieved like that were under God's judgment but also the nations were included in the gospel. In fact, go with me back to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and we'll conclude in this passage of scripture. Is the gift of tongues something needed and useful for us today? Well, the purpose, the reason informs the use, and so the answer is no. The gift of tongues was a sign for Jews of judgment and of inclusion of the Gentiles. And it was for a particular time in redemptive history. It was at the time where God opened up the doors to the Gentiles. So while God is opening up the doors, here's a sign that says this is why the doors are open. So is the gift of tongues for today? The answer is no. It's not necessary. There's no longer a reason for it. Is it possible that God could supernaturally empower someone to pray a language, a human language that they don't understand? What's the answer to that? Absolutely, it's possible. Like, God can do anything he wants to do. Is it possible that I could go outside and I could see a, a bush that's burning and it's not consumed and God speak to me from that bush? Is that possible? Could God do that? It's actually possible, right? But why did God do that with Moses? For a particular reason, for a particular purpose, right? In a particular time of redemptive history? 
I shouldn't expect that, right? In fact, I not only shouldn't expect that, that's not going to happen to me, right? That sign to Moses was for him for a particular time. This gift of tongues is the same way. It was for those people for a particular time to tell national Israel, you've rejected me, so I'm setting you aside. God's saying, I'm setting you aside. Now it's for the Gentiles. But listen, church, there will be a time where God will say, okay, Israel, now you are front and center. And God will include them back into being his special people, and we'll see that after the rapture of the church. So how does this sermon help us? <laughs> how does it build us up? Well, look at verse 20, because here's Paul's command. At the end of verse 20, in your thinking, be mature. In other words, grow up with the word of God. The most important thing that's going to come in your eyes this week the most important thing that's going to come in your ears this week, the most important thing that's going to rattle around in your brain this week is going to be God's word. The reason society is so messed up and they're following the religion of self is because Ephesians chapter 4 verse 17 says that they walk in the futility of their mind. And verse 18 says that their, their hearts are darkened. And, and, and the difference with us church, is that God has given us the truth, and we, by the power of the Holy Spirit, can see the light of God's word. And so what he says for us is that we need to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. Romans 12, 2, we are to be transformed by the renewal of our mind. 1 Corinthians 4, our outward person is wasting away, our inward person should be renewed. And so the principle here is that we need to build up one another by maturing the mind. That's what we're doing here. We're engaging our minds, and we need to mature, be mature in our thinking throughout the week as we set our minds on things above, not on things on the earth. So how can you do that this week? Think about that right now. What are some specific ways that you can set your mind on God's word? What are some ways that you're allowing yourself to, to not be innocent and evil? You're allowing evil to come in your mind. You're, you're, setting your things on, you're setting your mind on things of this earth. What are some ways that you can set your mind not on earthly things, but on things above? That's right, read the Bible. How about come to our evening service tonight? Jorge's preaching for us. How about memorize scripture? How about re-listen to some sermons? Find some other individuals who are preaching God's word. In your thinking, be mature. May God give us grace to grow up in our thinking. Let's pray. I'm going to ask the music team to come up. And I'm going to ask all of us to bow before the Lord in prayer. As we sing, we sing with our mind and our spirit. As we pray, we pray with our mind and our spirit. And so would you engage your mind right now and pray to the Lord in your heart. Speak to him about this sermon. Take something that maybe the Lord spoke to you in and ask him for grace to obey grace, to follow him, to do what he has called you to do.